0: Welcome, fellow traveler, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination.
1: Welcome, friends. This is Tent Talks. I'm Chris Marchand, and this is our new series entitled Women in Church Leadership. The premise is simple. Talk with a set of women in leadership within the church— and ask them the same set of questions. Let them tell their stories and experiences and see what kind of narrative thread emerges. This is episode two, Scrutiny and What We Haven't Been Able to Move Past. As a way of setting the context for today's episode, I'm going to offer two reflections, one personal and one from pop culture. My personal reflection begins during Christmas of 2019, My story is about a gift my wife gave me for Christmas, how I shared about it on social media, and how that affected the lead-up to me being ordained as a priest a few weeks later in the Anglican Church of North America. Getting ordained to ministry is a multi-year, multi-hoop-jumping process. I had gone to seminary and received my theological degrees almost a decade prior, and had been pastoring for most of that same decade. And even so, it took a number of years for me to progress from the discernment phase in my local congregation, to receiving approval by my diocese's board of ordained ministry, to being ordained as a deacon, and then finally, about a year and a half later, to being ordained as a priest. That was in 2020, in January. And this is as it should be. Taking on the mantle of shepherding God's people should never be entered into lightly, neither for the individual nor for the authoritative body ordaining them. But I had a few things rattling my confidence as I approached becoming a priest. About three years before, when I had come before the Board of Ordained Ministry, I told them, both in writing and my own speech, that I support women being ordained to the priesthood. My diocese thankfully ordains women to the diaconate, that is, to become deacons, but not to be priests or bishops. I was already an outsider in my diocese, which is historically Anglo-Catholic. Myself, I'm one of those more charismatic evangelical Anglicans anyway. After going through a few issues that perhaps could be red flags for me being ordained, I also then admitted to how I viewed women in ministry, that they should be ordained to the priesthood. They asked me if I would accept the diocese's stance surrounding not seeing women capable of being priests and if I would submit to my bishop. And I said I would. Fast forward now three or so years to Christmas 2019, and my wife very lovingly gave me the book, The Hidden History of Women's Ordination, Female Clergy in the Medieval West by Gary Macy. I was excited to receive the book, and along with a few other gifts, I shared a picture of the cover of it on social media. I was to be ordained to the priesthood in a little over a week's time. A few days later, I was told by a fellow priest, my friend who I had partnered in ministry with to start our church, that other priests in the diocese had seen my post and were none too pleased. That to post publicly about women being ordained was inappropriate that I was overstepping my bounds, especially since I wasn't myself a priest yet, and posting about something controversial and in support of something our diocese does not do. We don't ordain women to church ministry. Except we do. Although a number of priests in our diocese are still very uncomfortable with it or object to it outright, we very much do ordain women to be deacons It is a recognized office of the church where one is ordained, anointed, blessed by their bishop to serve their congregation. And thus, under a certain interpretation, my post about women's ordination was well within an accepted practice within my own diocese. But there's no need to be coy on either side. Yes, I'll admit my post was about the full ordination of women to ministry in the church. If the other side will admit, that they probably don't want women being ordained to anything in the church and only do so now grudgingly. I share this story as a way of exploring what it means to come under scrutiny. In the church world, if someone begins sharing about how women should be blessed to step into the fullness of being a pastor, priest, or even bishop, that person almost immediately becomes discredited, disparaged, mocked, called names even, put into their own categories, cast into outer darkness. Here's what I know. What I've experienced as a man in standing up for the place of women within the church is so incredibly minimal to what women who are leaders in the church have had to face their whole lives, and indeed face day in and day out. In my interview with Joy Qualls, she describes the scrutiny she's faced this way.
2: The great irony of the whole thing is I have to defend my faith less to people who don't believe that I have to defend.
1: Over the years, I have seen women relentlessly lambasted by their male counterparts in the church. The endless scrutiny they face looks daunting, discouraging, exhausting. I'm talking about how I've seen Kristen Kobes-Dumay and Beth Allison Barr continuously disrespected. All the way to a recent article by Madison Pierce recounting the trauma and abuse she's experienced as a woman working within Christian academia. So today's episode is about giving the women I've interviewed an opportunity to speak about that from each of their perspectives and experiences. Now to my pop culture example. It comes maybe from an unexpected place, the television show, The Simpsons. My family recently watched the episode Lisa vs. Malibu Stacy, which tells the story of Lisa Simpson's attempt to create a reimagined doll for girls, one that will inspire them to become brave world changers. The episode begins with Lisa's love of her old traditional classic Malibu Stacey dolls. It's an obvious stand-in for the Barbie doll, the future movie of which by Greta Gerwig I am very much looking forward to seeing someday. In the episode, they introduce a long-awaited talking version of the doll. And to Lisa's horror, Malibu Stacy utters such vain inanities as this. Let's
0: buy makeup so the boys will like us. I wish they taught shopping in school. Let's bake some cookies for the boys.
1: To which Lisa can't help but respond. Come on, Stacy. I've waited my whole life to hear you speak. Don't you have anything relevant to say? Lisa becomes incensed and has trouble finding support from her family. Why is she making such a big deal out of this? Millions of girls will grow up thinking that this is the right way to act. That they can never be anything more than vacuous ninnies whose only goal is to look pretty, land a rich husband, and spend all day on the phone with their equally vacuous friends talking about how damn terrific it is to look pretty and have a rich husband. I can't believe you're just going to stand by as your daughters grow up in a world
0: where this this is their role model
3: i had a malibu stacy when i was little and i turned out all right now let's forget our troubles with a big bowl of strawberry
1: ice cream
0: now let's forget our troubles with a big bowl of strawberry ice cream Mm.
1: her next step is to tour the malibu stacy factory in an attempt to file an official complaint about the talking doll to the company after watching a video surveying the doll's history Lisa voices her concerns and gets this response.
0: Don't ask me. I'm just a girl.
1: <laughs> 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 she sure is.
3: Well, that's the tour. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to
0: answer... I have one. Yes? Is the remark to be sexist drivel spouted by Malibu Stacy
4: intentional, or is it just a horrible mistake? <laughs> Believe me, we're very mindful of such concerns. <laughs> Hey, Jiggles, grab a pad and back that gorgeous butt in here. Oh, you get away. <laughs> uh, don't act like you don't like oh, oh. it. Oh.
1: At the end, when you hear that door slamming, it's because the attractive tour guide has slammed it shut with her just sexually harassed backside as she walks into a boardroom full of men, executives set in their secure positions of money-making authority. It's a scene played out in countless films and shows a woman only valued for her body and sexual prowess, a group of men in power putting a woman in her place, and the woman giving into it, seemingly enjoying it. She's been given a job, after all. She should be grateful. Lisa's response to all of this is to create her own doll, a version of woman all little girls could aspire to. She tracks down the original creator of the Malibu Stacy doll and convinces her to design a new doll, and together they come up with what they eventually call Lisa Lionheart. In a show of incisive satire, the episode ends with anticlimactic irony. That boardroom of middle-aged men in suits comes up with a new version of Malibu Stacy, just in time to derail the release of Lisa Lionheart.
0: than ever wait don't be fooled she's just a regular malibu stacy with a stupid cheap hat she still embodies all the awful stereotypes she did before but she's got a new hat
1: no one no one that is but a single little girl buys lisa's doll and everyone else is swayed by the shallow new wardrobe accessory offered with malibu stacy My reflection of all this is that when someone stands up for what they think is right and when they are asking for massive changes to occur within their culture, instead of being listened to and respected, they face opposition at every turn. Indeed, the world around them looks to destroy them. In the midst of looking for support from the very people who could most benefit from change, those people, in this case, women in the church, whether they're leaders or not, are often swayed from change to instead cling to what is easiest, and to the safety of the way things have always been. Today, I hope to offer a glimpse of what it looks like to face scrutiny for being a woman in church leadership. And what it means to be resilient, confident, and even joy-filled within a system that sees these women as a threat. Or that sees their titles and the roles they fill as illegitimate. So here is today's question. What scrutiny do you face as a woman in ministry or leadership that you thought wouldn't be a problem at this point in your life and career? What did you assume you and other women would have already moved past by now? As a refresher, I'm interviewing Abby Nye, an archivist at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee and researcher with CFC2 and ACNA2. Emily McGowan, associate professor of theology at Wheaton College and canon theologian for the Anglican Diocese Church for the Sake of Others, or C4SO. Joy Qualls, dean and associate professor at Biola University.
4: April McClure Stewart,
1: pastor of MCC, Disciples of Christ, and executive director for her denomination, School of Ministry. We will begin with Abby Nye, who found herself being scrutinized and disrespected by church leaders, but as she was acting in her role as an archivist and researcher.
3: This is an interesting question for me to answer because I am coming to this podcast from a slightly different place. I work at a university. I don't hold any paid or official ministry roles. So I've gotten used to operating as a woman in the secular world. I'm well-respected by my male colleagues. They recognize my intelligence and my talents. I never feel like my gender has any bearing on my work, but contrast that to the work that I do with ACNA2 and CFC2, Uh, and those are two very different advocacy groups.
1: From their website, ACNA2 describes themselves this way. ACNA 2 was launched in June 2021 in response to the pleas of survivors of sexual abuse and their advocates in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, ACNA. We now exist to support people in all dioceses of the ACNA Our team is made up of survivors, clergy, theologians, mental health professionals, trauma-informed consultants, public relations specialists, graphic designers, communication strategists, researchers, members of the diocese of the upper Midwest and other dioceses, and parents who seek a better church for their children. While we all lead very different lives, we hold these things in common. We believe survivors. We believe the church can be healthier. We believe that the ACNA can change for the better. Abby had been consulted to help with the Mark Rivera case. For background, here are some excerpts from an article on Julie Roy's website. Mark Rivera served as a lay minister at a church plant of the Anglican Church in North America in Big Rock, Illinois, from 2013 to 2019. He was initially arrested in 2019 and charged in connection with his crimes against Sharon Marie's daughter who attended the church plant with Sharon and her family. Rivera has since been accused of abusing more than 10 other alleged survivors and has also been charged with two felony counts of criminal sexual assault. In December of 2022, Rivera was found guilty of five counts of felony child sexual abuse and assault.
3: Speaking to my experience, especially with ACNA 2, I've been stunned how men within ACNA have treated me and other women. It's not even scrutiny. like They just refuse to take us seriously. The disdain, the condescending tones, the way they ignored my expertise and the expertise of other women has been really disheartening. It's been discouraging to see the secular worst place treating women with more Christ-like respect than a Christian denomination. I mean, I would say thankfully, Like, I know my worth, but that's come from developing as a leader outside the church rather than inside. Mm -hmm. To give some context, so I joined ACTA 2 last summer in July, and in late August... I was on one Zoom meeting with uh, Bishop Alan Hawkins, who is uh, in the Diocese of Christ, our Hope, and he was leading the provincial response team. And at this point, they were just setting up the provincial response team. They They were interviewing people to see who would be a good fit. And we kind of met with Alan, and this was the one meeting I was in with him. And I tried to share with him, hey, look, I work for the state of Wisconsin at a state university. We have public records. I actually have been the records manager of this state agency. I know a little bit about public records, about how you balance confidentiality and transparency. I've led multiple hiring committees where like, we have this whole long, it's like a four-month process. Most of these are open meetings where anybody can come in. Like, This is how we handle things like this, you don't have to do it exactly this way, but this is, it is possible. And so I kind of laid this out and he looked at me. And for a second, the kind grandpa mask just dropped. And I saw this look of contempt in his eyes. And then he said, well, that's an opinion. And I was like, okay, okay. That was the last meeting I was present with him. Um, but then of course, my my experience was confirmed by people who resigned from the provincial response team. Autumn, Kristen, Gina, who have mountains of evidence of the way in which their expertise, as trauma-informed experts, who were brought in, Alan and the other ACMA leaders said, These people are wonderful. They're trauma-informed. They're going to make sure everything is done properly. And then we find out that they've been totally ignored. That their expertise has been scorned. And eventually they resigned in protest. In this particular context, I can compare the way that I was treated to the way that somebody else on my team, who's basically the same age, was treated, but he's a man and a priest. And the respect that he got was completely different, which, whatever, we can use that to our advantage. But, you know, in those moments, sometimes I feel like there's a place to call that out and be like, you know, let me tell you a little bit more. Let me see if I can like reach you in a different way. Sometimes people are willing to listen or to be wrong. That was not the case in this situation. But I don't want to necessarily just write off everyone who treats women with disrespect as people who can't learn. I have to hold out hope that they can see God's image in us. But that doesn't mean that I am entirely optimistic about, you know, dealing with that in a meeting such as I described. This was a situation in which members of the ACNA-2 team were meeting with Alan Hawkins. So I was not on the provincial response team. I was on the ACNA-2 team. In July of 2021, when the province took over oversight of the Mark Rivera mishandling case in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest, they stepped in to create a lot of structure to handle this. So they, have, they wanted to assemble a volunteer provincial response team that would essentially field survivor stories, provide intermediary support, and then hire the investigation firm that would look into this these allegations of mishandling in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest. I think in that moment, there's a part of my brain that is starting to put the behavior into boxes. You're like, oh, okay, this is what's going on, you know. And and that in the moment assessment helps me figure out how to how to respond. In the sense that I need to figure out if it's worth fighting or not, because as I mentioned before, sometimes. If you can phrase things a different way, or if you can bring in more evidence or you know other things, you, it can make a difference. And in this case, my brain was checking a box that said, this is not going to work. <laughs> Stop talking, don't waste your time. Did you ever see the, um, the Swan Princess animated movie like back from the 90s? The prince says something stupid and his advisor goes,
4: You should write a book. How to offend women in
0: five syllables or less.
3: (laughs) I was like, "Hmm, okay, well, that's an opinion.
2: probably the biggest thing is in the frame of what we call the Billy Graham or the the Mike Pence rule, right? The 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 notion that I have to be very aware of am i going to need to be alone with a man am i going to have to navigate the can we ride in a car together can we have a private meeting we're at lunch together you know those sorts of things i i sat on the board of a ministry organization for a friend of mine and it was kind of a i don't know maybe you call a mastermind group trying to um encourage pastors pastors encouraging other pastors and and as a result of being on on this board um, he wanted all of us to go through this kind of uh, mentorship program that that had been created, and at the end of this mentorship program was a retreat, and and so we go to the mountains of Colorado to this beautiful cabin, and I'm the only woman. It's Joy and the boys, and it would it would become Joy and the boys for several years, so it kind of became a joke. But but that first year it was just Joy and the boys, and and it was really wonderful, and there wasn't any weirdness or anything until. We rolled around into the evening and everybody was headed out to the hot tub. And there was this sense of like, what do I do? You know, what, like, is it okay? Is anybody going to care? Are their wives going to be bothered? Like, we've all been together. We've been staying in this house together for three or four days and it hasn't been weird at all, but all of a sudden it got super weird. And I just kind of hung out in my room until one of the guys came and knocked and was like, what are you doing? And I was well, you know, everything inside my evangelical girl life was like, I cannot be in a hot tub with a bunch of men, you know, where there's not wives or, or or other people, and and he was like, get over yourself and go get in the hot tub, you know, and it was just this like, okay, you know, but it's but it's those kind of things that that you're just constantly aware of, and and you're just constantly having to figure out how to navigate, and and I felt. Like, it was such a great moment in some regard, because it was like a brother coming to me and saying, like, you're the one who's making this weird. We're all fine. Like, come be with us. We've already bonded over, you know, over these things. And and, and it just helped me sort of get past some of the, you know, like I said, sort of those mental blocks. And I was scared to death about what if their wives found out you know, absolutely petrified. And it took a long time to sort of get past that. But again, like when I discovered that their wives were cool, right? Like they all knew I was up in the mountains with these, but but I was, you know, I was there with five guys. I wasn't there with one guy or whatever it happened to be. So, you know, maybe it would have been extra weird had it been in that situation, but but it wasn't. So a couple of years later, there's a little bit of a follow-up. A couple of years later, uh, one of the guys that was there was announcing that I was coming to his church to speak. And it's like on a Facebook, like a public Facebook thing. And somebody who was a part of, I can't remember one of the teams or something that was there, responds to the post on Facebook. Is that hot tub girl? And I was like, oh you have to take that down like you can't have that you can't leave that comment up there like my reputation will be destroyed forever you know but but this guy was was an engineer and kind of you know not not necessarily your most sociable uh human being and he just he couldn't remember my name and so that's all he could come up with was like the last time I saw her she was in a hot tub you know and I just but I was like you please you have to take that comment down but but it's kind of become a it's kind of become a running joke amongst all of us who are kind of part of that group. And so I think that's, that's the one thing is like, it's just, you're, you are, you are always having to be two steps ahead of the situation and, and what is the response going to be to your presence? And I just thought in the year of our Lord, 2022, where women have been CEOs, they have been you know, presidential candidates, I I wish perhaps they would have already been a president, but they, you know, we've, we've, we've had women in every sector of leadership. Um, But this one is still, is still such a, a weird one for people. So, so that's been unexpected.
1: April's response was directed at her fellow male pastors and how their approach to ministry has affected the culture in which they all serve.
4: You know, as a young woman, my age was the thing that I think was really, that was more deterring than the fact that I was a woman. Again, I'm not sure that I have faced situations where there has been something that I've expected us to move past because I've always been in these situations where woman is expected to be in this position, you know? So, I mean, even when I'm at meetings, ecumenical meetings, or when I'm at denominational meetings, I don't feel, I personally don't feel dismissed or that I wish that there was something different happening or that I had a different expectation. I guess one thing that I see as I get older is that the women pastors who I was with in my twenties and thirties, who played the game of, uh, try to get the big church, the good positions, you know, kind of the, um, the political games that they've burnt out and the competition just doesn't serve us well. But I also think that men that, you know, like I wish, I actually have a lot more things that I wish I would have thought men would have moved past, and the competition is a huge thing. I have always thought that I would have thought that men, especially men in their 40s and 50s and 60s, would have moved past the the pissing contest that <laughs> basically that happens with uh, churches and ministry programs and you know, the, the need to recite what one has accomplished and the innovations that their church has experienced. And I do not see that among my female pastor friends. I made that observation once to a male friend and he, he was just astounded. Like he had no idea that that's what was happening. And I was like, just, just stand back and watch this conversation that happens around the, the men of the church and male ministers And just wait until, you know, how long is it before someone mentions some accomplishment that they've had? And oftentimes it's couched as false humility as, you know, I was blessed to be part of blah, blah, you know. Yeah. Just (laughs) move on, you know.
1: Finally, Emily offers her thoughts about the cultural stereotypes surrounding women that we just can't seem to let go of similar views expressed so articulately from the mouth of a Malibu Stacy doll. Don't ask me,
0: I'm just a girl. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that we're still talking about women's ordination. There are so many traditions that still, that that is not something they're willing to support. And so I'm not surprised by that. I, I do get shocked at the kind of stereotypes about women that are still in circulation And accepted as generally true, even though we know, we know (laughs) through research that they're not true. You know, stereotypes like, well, women are just more emotional than men. And so women aren't suited for leadership because they can't think rationally about things. Or, you know, men are best suited for situations in which conflict is, is liable to occur. And so we want men in those positions of leadership. And there's just there's no evidence that that is in fact the case. Uh, I don't I'm not the kind of person who wants to say there are no differences between men and women. There absolutely are. Uh, there's research to support that. But the assumption that women are somehow mentally, emotionally, rationally inferior or so substantively different that they're almost a different creature, I, I just I find that baffling today. I get very irritated with my with friends, guy friends who I love who will joke about women still as though we are a different species. And I I just want to say in response, look, we're all human beings. (laughs) Dorothy Sayers asked this question back in the 30s, are women human? And her answer was yes. And so that's probably the most surprising thing, at least in my circles.
1: Those who This series was produced and recorded by me, Chris Marchand, with oversight from Stephen Backhouse. Thank you to all of my interviewees. Your stories are shaping and changing me. Our theme music is Deborah's Song by Rachel Wilhelm from her Mystery Canticles EP. You can find her on any streaming platform or support her more directly on Bandcamp. We are able to produce this podcast because of our Patreon backers, If you would like to support what we do, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for only five dollars or five pounds a month at www.patreon.com slash tenttheology. And there you will have access to numerous teachings from Stephen Backhouse, extra interviews, and even the chance for seasonal Zoom meetups. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next week for part three of Women in Church Leadership, where the subject is femininity and motherhood and the role that plays in the lives of women pastors.
0: Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.